Oh my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict Ironjaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That that way. Way. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your totally not possessed host, Josh Baker, cover six new to me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. This episode contains fake monsters, movie murder, and cannibal moms. Join me on a trip to Transylvania to investigate some monster sightings. We can talk movies on the plane. Number 1, Transylvania 65000, 1985, directed by Rudy De Luca. Jeff Goldblum and Ed Bagley Jr. head to Transylvania after Frankenstein's monster is spotted there. Once in Transylvania, they eventually run into a bunch of monsters. Turns out the monsters are people that were receiving medical help from a doctor since some of the leaders of the town were pocketing money that was supposed to help the people. No one is the killer. Transylvania 65000 is a movie packed with funny people that are throwing bits filled spaghetti at the wall hoping something will stick. That's not to say the movie isn't funny, but there are long odd stretches where none of the attempted humor lands. Sequences like the lengthy one in the kitchen between John Biner and Carol Kane come off as a camera being pointed at them with the only direction being go off. Similar things happen with Michael Richards. All of those actors have funny bits in the movie, but I wish some of the material was polished a bit more. Besides the sequences that must have been improvised, Transylvania 6-5000 is a funny movie. The main actors that really squeeze out the humor are Ed Bagley Jr., Carol Kane, and Michael Richards. Listen, we all love Jeff Goldblum. I liked him in the movie, but not many laughs stemmed from his character. A strange addition to the movie is Jeff's characters being overly into a mediocre-looking woman who had an awful, high-pitched voice and young child. She's the most unlikable character by far. Until she starts hitting people over the head with bottles, I love a good comical bottling. I do not condone real-life bottling. I feel compelled to buy some easy-break bottles. Maybe someday I'll make a short that heavily includes comedic bottling. A big strength of the comedy in Transylvania 6-5000 is the fact that a majority of it is visual. Ed Bagley Jr. relaxing in the air against a wall, Michael Richards removed limbs, the fortune teller constantly bashing her head through tables, loads of pratfalls, and more. Visual and physical comedy is perfectly suited for cinema. Whenever I watch a movie that focuses on comedy that isn't just a person telling jokes, I'm pretty happy. This is as good as time as ever to bring up the fact that Gina Davis plays a sexy Dracula. She's not actually a monster though. None of the characters are monsters. Gina Davis and Jeff Goldblum must have made Transylvania 6-5000 and The Fly back to back. That's how a sexy vampire and disgusting fly man fell in love. For 
a couple years. Their marriage didn't last that long, and no beautiful tall children were created. Jeff Goldblum is 6'4", and Gina Davis is 6 foot. Since I'm pedantic, I have to point out that a character should have been referred to as Frankenstein's monster, not Frankenstein. The funniest monster character was the Wolfman, who was played by Donald Gibb. His performance is strangely anachronistic compared to everyone else's, but it worked. The more I think about Transylvania 6 5000, the less funny I remember it. It's kind of astounding that a movie that includes so many amazing comedic actors doesn't have an amazing track record when it comes to laughs. It was written and directed by Rudy De Luca. The only other thing I've seen that he has a writing credit for is Dracula Dead and Loving It, which I don't remember liking, and I'm a big Leslie Nielsen fan. I feel alright throwing Rudy De Luca under the bus for the lack of laughs. You can't just lean on funny people to carry your movie with improv, Rudy. Transylvania 6 5000 is not a laugh riot throughout, but it is fun seeing a bunch of familiar comedic faces goof off. I give it a soft recommendation on the condition that you watch it with friends and beverages. I don't think you'll get much enjoyment out of it solo. Number 2, The Babysitter, Killer Queen, 2020, directed by McG. Years have passed since Cole dealt with B and her cult. No one believes Cole about that night. Melanie, the girl who kissed Cole in the first movie, has a new boyfriend and asks Cole to come hang out with her and her friends on the lake. Once at the lake, Melanie kills a girl and wants Cole's blood in order to complete the same ritual as last time. All the cult members that died come back from the dead. A girl named Phoebe pops up, saves Cole, and the duo go on the run. Cole and Phoebe re-kill the old cult members. Some of Melanie's friends explode after walking away from the ritual. Cole and Phoebe get intimate, and dads are brought in to help capture the duo. Melanie kills her dad, captures Phoebe as bait for Cole, takes Cole's blood, and all the old cultists come back from the dead. B shows up. Melanie mixes the girl she killed and Cole's blood together and drinks it with the old cult members, excluding B. Cole isn't innocent anymore, so the blood drinkers explode. B was behind Cole and Phoebe meeting and ending things. B says goodbye, drinks the blood, and disappears. Melanie and the cult members are the killers. Melanie is the only character who murders innocent people, but the cult members backed her actions. Sonia, one of the OG cult members, also kills a guy, but that guy was a random hillbilly rapist that was thrown into the movie as a way to hit more horror tropes. I watched the OG Babysitter back to back with the sequel. The original was just as I remembered it, an alright movie with some decent laughs and gore. Given that I never put the original on some sort of pedestal, I wasn't expecting much from Babysitter 2. I went in with even lower expectations when I found out Samara Weaving's B wouldn't be a main character in the movie. I was actually surprised that she showed up at all given how her career has been going. Since I didn't expect anything from Babysitter 2, I thought it was a very enjoyable movie. The worst thing about Baby 2 is Phoebe. She was played by Jenna Ortega, whose on-screen presence is overshadowed by every other character. Her line delivery has no soul. Sure, the dialogue she was given was comically overwritten, reference-filled garbage, but she could have delivered it in an over-the-top fun way. Judah Lewis, who reprised his role as Cole, proved that he's perfectly campy. Everyone but Jenna Ortega and Samara Weaving bring the level of ham that was necessary for Baby 2, a movie that doesn't take anything seriously. 
I'm a big Samara Weaving fan. I didn't find her performance when she popped up at the end to contain any of the energy she had in the original. She does have quick scenes throughout the movie where she's shown recruiting the original cult, which were stupid and silly. That's why they worked. Here's a dumb retcon that is definitely the weakest part of the sequel. B was babysitting Phoebe. Phoebe left her stuffed rabbit on the beach, so B and Phoebe jumped in a jeep to get it and ended up running head on into Phoebe's parents since they were on the way home with the stuffed bunny in their possession for some reason. Neither driver was watching the road. B wakes up in the hospital and asks about Phoebe. She's about to be super dead, says Demon Nurse, unless your soul, dig it? So that's why B joined the cult. Years later, Cole reminded her that being a jerk and taking shortcuts bad, so B stopped being evil. It's dumb. The more I think about it, the more I hate it. Barring that stupidity, Sitter 2 is a turn-off-your-brain fun time. There is a lot more CGI this time around when it comes to gore, but practical effects are also still in the mix. The most egregious use of CGI blood is when a character would throw up CGI blood, which was then turned into practical blood as it landed on another character. Just have the actors put some fake blood in their mouths. The gore, which is splattered throughout, is still a ton of fun. One thing that's incredibly weird when it comes to Babysitter 2 is the focus on banging. Cole is supposed to be 12 in the original. Two years later is when 2 takes place. 14-year-old Cole's high school counselor says that he needs to get laid. Sir, this is a child. When Cole and Phoebe end up doing the deed, this is tastefully showcased by an interpretive dance and shots of phallic and penetrative imagery. Did I say tastefully? I meant the opposite of that. It's straight up gross. Cole not being an innocent is important to the plot, but you don't have to have a bunch of sex jokes, a weird purchase of magnum condoms, and crude montages. Another thing that could have been heavily toned down in B-Sitter 2 is the amount of references. There are some fun references, like when old shirtless has to tell Zoomer Cole about Tommy Two-Tone, when Cole is trying to figure out what the code for a boat named Jenny is. You know, 8675309? That surprisingly worked. What I couldn't stand were the constant member movie references. The Terminator series must have been brought up at least six times. When Two Baby Two Sitter isn't leaning on the pop culture references, a lot of humor lands. Old Shirtless working at a fast food restaurant while Shirtless with a name tag on his bare chest is funny. Absurdism has a special place in my heart. The text on screen from the original also makes an appearance in two. It doesn't work this time either. Phoebe and Melanie end up fighting, which is stylized like they're in a Street Fighter-esque game. As a big fighting game fan myself, I almost liked it, but whoever was in charge of the camera angles and UI really beefed it. It was half-assed. If you were going to do something that dumb in your movie, you best full-ass it. My new dream project is to create a slasher where a grappler character escapes an arcade machine and wreaks havoc. I think that could include a much more polished version of what's in Baby 2. I've been thinking about how it should be represented and have some great ideas. Send me a bunch of money to make this. Does anyone personally know Cameron Michaels, the muscle drag queen? She'd be great as the grappler. Sitter 2. Songs are played loudly throughout. It ends up being about 50% fun and 50% obnoxious. Cole pees on Phoebe's face. 
At the cabin, he has to go to the bathroom and is told to pee in a vase. Phoebe then startles him midstream for no apparent reason, and boy was her face yellow. I thought one of the villains was going to have a urine-filled vase broken over their head or something, but instead there's just an awkward face full of piss. Is McGee some kind of sexual deviant? McGee also directed the year 2000 Charlie's Angels movie. That was a fun time, besides that part where Drew Barrymore is in brownface. The Babysitter Killer Queen isn't a horror movie comedy masterpiece, but like the original movie, it's an enjoyable time. Check it out if you thought the first one was decent. Number 3, Fade to Black, 1980, directed by Vernon Zimmerman. A movie-obsessed kid named Eric lives with his aunt since his mom is dead and he never knew his dad. His aunt was left wheelchair-bound after driving home from a party early to take care of Eric. Eric meets a girl named Marilyn who looks like Marilyn Monroe. They somehow hit it off and agree to meet up later for a movie date. Marilyn forgets about the date and shows up way too late. Eric becomes more and more disillusioned with reality, starts believing he's a gangster movie character named Cody Jarrett, and kills his aunt. Eric then takes up the mantles of other characters from movies and kills some people, which ends with him and Marilyn on the roof of the Chinese theater where Eric is gunned down by police. It's revealed that his aunt was also actually his mom. Eric is the killer. Here's how he kills. Causes his aunt's wheelchair to fly down some stairs. Chases a girl until she ends up tripping and landing neck first on a pointy fence post. Shoots a co-worker while dressed as a cowboy. Scares his boss into having a heart attack as a mummy. And lights up a producer who stole his idea with a Tommy gun. Only one of those victims was played by Mickey Rourke. When I saw the name pop up in the opening credits, I started scanning for him. Rourke played Eric's mean co-worker Richie. There is barely any resemblance between Richie Rourke and modern day Rourke. I went into Fade to Black with high expectations since I saw a lot of people praising the movie for being more than a by the numbers slasher. It's a little more fleshed out for sure, but I would still say Fade to Black follows the generic slasher formula. Eric definitely has a lot more character than other slasher villains. If Marilyn would have showed up to the date on time, Eric never would have killed anyone. Well, until she inevitably stopped talking to his weird ass. If Eric had only killed the producer, I wouldn't even put him on the killer list. Plagiarism is a crime that should be punishable by death. The picture quality in Fade to Black jumps all over the place. There will be a fine looking wide shot, and once the lens is changed for a closer shot at the same location, the quality takes a dive. Strange zooms are sprinkled throughout. There's a scene where the most awkward psychologist cop helper dude finishes making Whoopi with a sexy cop lady. They come out of the covers with Ritz crackers in hand. How are those incorporated? Y'all have a crumbs fetish or something? Anyway, they are talking in bed and for no reason there's a zoom. There are multiple scenes that end abruptly. A character will say something ridiculous, then there is an instant fade to black to the next scene. It's odd. I don't think it was done with comedic effect in mind, even though Fade to Black was intentionally made as a horror comedy. Dennis Christopher plays Eric. His performance captures the true outcast weirdo that Eric is. When he's acting as other characters like Cody Jarrett, he's terrible, but that makes sense. Eric isn't a good actor, he's some movie trivia freak. I could see hating Christopher's overall performance though. He's a bit over the top even for an outcast. He had just won an Oscar for his performance in Breaking Away, so maybe he decided he could let the ham out. 
The psychologist was played by Tim Thomerson. He's awful. There's an absurd sequence where he snorts cocaine and plays a harmonica, which somehow makes the sexy lady cop hot for him. There's nothing that excites me more than a harmonica. I want to say harmonica is by far the worst instrument. Harmonica has never made a song better. I'd switch out harmonica for bagpipes any day. That's how much I hate harmonicas. The gore was done practically and isn't great. Most gore comes from gunshots, which don't sell. The fence post through the neck looked alright though. Fade to Black is a slasher that adds some freshness but doesn't reinvent the wheel. It's an enjoyable ride that runs out of steam during the last fourth. It's still worth checking out for slasher fans. Number 4, Phantom of the Paradise, 1974, directed by Brian De Palma. A producer named Swan steals a guy named Winslow's musical. Winslow tries to get credit but only ends up disfigured without a voice. Winslow, now the Phantom, terrorizes Swan's production. Swan says he'll help Winslow as long as he finishes the musical. Winslow wants a girl named Phoenix to sing his music, but Swan hires a dude named Beef. Winslow kills Beef. Phoenix sings the music and becomes famous. She joins Swan and decides to marry him. Winslow finds out that he and Swan signed a deal with the devil after trying to stab himself and Swan to death to no avail. Winslow destroys a film that is aging in Swan's place, which reveals how ugly he is. Winslow also causes a sniper that's trying to kill Phoenix during the wedding to kill the officiator instead. With the tape keeping Swan alive destroyed, Winslow stabs Swan to death, which makes his own stab wound open up. Winslow dies in Phoenix's arms, who realizes he was the Phantom. Winslow and the sniper are the killers. You could probably throw Swan on the killers list too, since he instructs the sniper to kill someone during the wedding. A horror musical from the 70s, why did it take me so long to check out Phantom of Paradise? Paradise is an insanely fun time. It's like the Rocky Horror Picture Show if it didn't run out of gas at the end. Listen, like everyone I love, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, but it drags hard at the end. I don't think that's a sacrilegious thing to say. Paradise doesn't have that problem. Zany action happens throughout. Winslow's transformation into the Phantom is fantastic. Poor dude has his teeth replaced with metal dentures in Sing Sing, then gets his head stuck in a record press which disfigures his face and destroys his vocal cords. Normal looking Winslow's singing his Faust musical? Boring. Terrible. Nerd. Phantom Bird Face Jaws Winslow singing Faust? Awesome. William Finley was great as Winslow. His phantom getup is iconic. I wonder if Griffith in Berserk's design was based at all on Phantom Winslow. They look real similar. The music in Paradise is wonderful. Paul Williams created the music. I want to say my first introduction to Paul Williams was that episode of Dexter where he shows up and does a song called Breathe in the Sunshine. I also love Touch, his song with Daft Punk. The man's career is huge. Is he a weird pick to play the character Swan? Yeah, but he works. Everyone works in their roles. This was Jessica Harper's first feature film. She played Phoenix and went on to play Susie in Suspiria a few years later. My favorite character in Paradise is Beef, who was played by Garrett Graham. He's a drugged out flamboyant rock star. Every time he's in a different scene, he has a new symbol on his cheek. Winslow only wants Phoenix to sing Faust, but come on Winslow, Beef brings the energy and excitement. Phoenix singing Faust is a sleep aid. 
The crowd digging Phoenix after the phenomenal performance Beef put on before being electrocuted by Winslow makes zero sense. Phoenix doesn't even do anything to win over the crowd. This isn't a serious criticism, I just miss Beef. Winslow explicitly told Beef anyone who sang Faust that wasn't Phoenix would die. The production design for Paradise is extravagant and colorful. Each new location offered a new and interesting aesthetic. The gore? There isn't much. There's some bright red blood from a couple stab wounds. Winslow's record press face looks pretty gnarly when it's fresh and when it's shown healed at the end. I highly recommend Phantom of the Paradise. It's a fantastic time filled with rock and music and stunning visuals. If you want to double feature it with another horror musical, it would pair well with the Rocky Horror Picture Show, The Lure, or 2014's Stage Fright. I can't believe the guy that did Scarface also did Paradise. Somehow the only Brian De Palma films I've seen are Phantom of the Paradise and Carrie. Go figure. Death Records wasn't the original choice for the label name in the movie. Turns out the label was going to be called Swan Song Records, but that was Led Zeppelin's record label. They forced the film to change it, which is why there are some obvious scenes where Death Records is superimposed over something. Death Records is way cooler, anyway. Number 5, Flesh Eating Mothers, 1988, directed by James Aviles Martin. An STD turns mothers into flesh-eating mothers. Commissioner Dixon is first to realize this after his wife attacks him. He kills her and tries to cover it up. He has Officer Hitchcock kill another officer who's getting to the bottom of things with the help of Dr. Gruley. Dr. Gruley teams up with Carolyn and the duo make a cure. With the help of the infected mother's children, the cure is given to all the moms. One homewrecker named Booty remains infected and attacks a cheating dad. Flesh-eating mothers, Dixon, and Officer Hitchcock are the killers. Dixon told Hitchcock to take out the comp that knew too much, so he's responsible. Thanks for tuning in to Blank is the Killer. The podcast is over. It finally peaked. Flesh-eating mothers is the best horror movie ever created. That might be hyperbole. Flesh-eating mothers is one of the best so-bad-it's-good horror movies I've ever seen. That statement is factually accurate. Flesh-Eating Mothers has everything. It takes place in what must be suburbs in New Jersey. 50% of the cast has New Jersey accents. 0% of the cast has any acting ability. Dr. Gruley, aka Tiny Scientist, looked to be about 4 feet tall. A mother literally eats her baby. Quick side note, if you ate your baby after receiving some weird cannibal virus and were cured... Would you even want to go on living knowing that you ate your baby boy? That's dark. I don't... I don't even want to think about it anymore. The older sister of that baby boy sees her mom eat the kid. She didn't even seem as shook up as you'd expect. None of the kids whose moms either attacked them or ate their loved ones really seemed all that upset about it. They don't call the cops or anything. Cop who knew too much must feel really bad about killing his wife. She just ate their son. She could have been cured. Oh, wait. Cop man died too. That's definitely the end of a lineage. Pet warning. The hungry moms comically pull apart a dumpster cat like it's a Stretch Armstrong until it ends up split in two. It's not disturbing in any way. You can barely see anything. I'd say a good half of the film isn't lit at all. I could still follow everything that was going on even though it was laughably dark in the second half. 
There's a buff alcoholic dad that keeps beating up his wife and son. Since the virus makes moms crazy strong, the abused mom is able to take down buff dad. Real life abuse isn't funny, but it's pretty funny when buff dad keeps randomly walking out of his house and pushing people down in his driveway. The effects work is all practical and truly delightful. Most of the gore looks surprisingly amazing. That's probably because the poor picture quality is covering up how cheap the effects must have been. Dixon's stump where his wife ripped off his arm looked gruesome. The gunshots had blood explosion impacts. It's hilarious when a mom was supposed to be eating a toddler but was shown chomping on the limb of a grown man. The makeup effects for the infected moms was... Fun? It wasn't good makeup and ended up making them look like they were turning into Donkey Kong. One, I'm assuming full-size, flesh-eating mother puppet exists, or at the very least existed. It looked like a completely bonkers ventriloquist dummy. The score is incredible. The entire score sounds like stock music that would come with a music-making program. It rarely fits what's going on. It heightens the comedy. I did hate the one song where a sample of a pig squealing was played over and over and over and over. Not only were the most basic sounding stock songs of all time included, there are also original songs about suburbia, monsters, and hunger for meat. Sherry Lamar performed a lot of the original songs and they are definitely some of the most bizarre songs I've ever heard. At one point, Dr. Gruley and Carolyn are looking at cells to see what's going on. Instead of just having them talk about the cells, cartoons of the cells interacting with the virus and cure are shown. It's completely unnecessary for the random animation to be included, but it adds to the weird enigma that is flesh-eating mothers. Flesh-eating mothers is a cannibalistic New Jersey STD nightmare. I implore you to watch this movie with a group of buddies. It's one of the wackiest, so bad it's good horror movies I've ever seen. Number 6, The Taking of Deborah Logan, 2014, directed by Adam Robidell. A documentary team is capturing a woman named Deborah Logan's struggle with Alzheimer's disease. Deborah begins deteriorating at an unusual rate. Turns out Deborah killed a serial killer named Henry Desjardins before he could kill her daughter Sarah, who was going to be the last victim for a ritual Desjardins was performing. Desjardins' spirit was able to possess Deborah due to Alzheimer's. Desjardins then dug up his remains, hid them, and captured a little girl suffering from cancer. Sarah and the documentary crew find the remains and join the police in a hunt for Deborah and the little girl. During the hunt, Deborah kills an officer. Deborah is finally located trying to swallow the little girl like a snake. Desjardins' remains are burned and Deborah and the little girl appear to be saved. Time passes and the little girl is shown fully recovered. The girl gives a sinister grin to the camera. Desjardins is the killer. He killed four girls while alive and a cop while possessing Deborah. It's possible that more people died, but those are the only confirmed deaths. Years ago, I saw an unsettling gif of an old woman with an unhinged jaw attempting to swallow a child. I found out it was from The Taking of Deborah Logan, watched a brief clip of the entire scene, and that was that until now. I finally decided it was time to watch the movie in full. 
Was the journey worth that eerie scene? Deb Log is almost an amazing horror movie. You have a documentary crew in a big old house keeping tabs on a creepy old lady who may or may not be possessed. The movie definitely has some frightening imagery and ideas, but a lot of the execution is bad. Throughout Deblog, the documentary cameras constantly have technical issues like static and other distortion that aren't really a thing anymore. The movie was made in 2014. If I believed all the footage was shot using old videotape-fed cameras, I wouldn't mind all the obviously added and post-distortion. But as it appeared in the movie, the distortion was annoying. The cheeseball camera effects aren't the biggest issue. The worst thing about Deblog is all the added score that's sole purpose is to let the audience know something spooky is going on. I don't need a sound cue to tell me a nailed shut window randomly opening or a creepy old woman appearing out of nowhere in places is scary. My eyeballs understand that it's scary. This is a big issue with a lot of found footage movies. Deblog would be a much more haunting experience without the overbearing score and fake camera issues. Snake Debra filled me with dread until Snake Deb was given a little too much screen time. Whenever you make a truly horrifying creature, you have to remember that the more time it's shown, the less of an impact it'll have. I'm assuming a mixture of practical effects and CGI were used for Snake Deb, but I couldn't find any explicit information on how the form was brought to life. Overall, the effects work for Snake Deb looked great, but the dumb face stretching to make regular Deb look like Ghostface, which happened a few times, should have been scrapped. The acting is all over the place, well, not really. Everyone but the documentary crew is great. Jill Larson is the obvious standout as Deborah Logan. Her performance is perfect. And Ramsey is also strong as Sarah Logan. Her character's decision making is a bit goofy at the end, but that's a writing issue. No one is going to randomly crawl through a tiny opening in a cave that is filled with unidentified snakes, yet Sarah and one of the documentary crew members do it. The way it's introduced that Desjardins has possessed Deb is that she randomly knows French. Desjardins is revealed to be from Quebec. At the end, I was sure that the little girl was going to answer one of the news interviewer's questions in French. She didn't drop a je ne sais pas or a bienvenue or a ha 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 baguette. If she's not speaking French, maybe the ritual didn't work. The ritual that Desjardins was working on required five girls to be ritualistically sacrificed in exchange for eternal life. He only killed four girls. The last little girl isn't killed in the correct ritualistic fashion by Desjardins and his remains are destroyed. I don't understand how he could end up in control of the little girl. If he had just jumped from Deb's body to the little girl's body, it would have made sense, but the little girl would still have cancer and not have miraculously recovered. Maybe the ritual just wasn't explained well enough in Deblog. At least Bagul wasn't behind everything. The taking of Deborah Logan is a creepy time that ends up being a little too absurd during the final chase. How is the same kid going to get kidnapped twice? That's right, I skipped over the fact that Deb is able to disappear with the little girl with more than enough time to swallow her whole twice. Wouldn't a guard be put outside either Deb's or the little girl's door? Time shouldn't have been wasted with a first abduction. 
consider checking this one out, but be warned that the last 20 minutes are quite the slog. Snake Deb is pretty cool though. Number 7, what we do in the shadows, house tier list. F tier, Guillermo. Guillermo hasn't made me laugh once. His character is annoying and Harvey Guillen has no comedic timing. Guillermo focused episodes are definitely the worst. It doesn't help that Guillermo is the familiar of another low tier character. C tier, Nandor. Compared to other house vampires, Nandor sucks. K-Van Novak's comedic chops are weak. Nandor does provide a good chuckle every once in a while, but is nowhere near as consistent as other characters. His mediocre presence is regularly joined by Guillermo, which hurts Nandor's likability quite a bit. B-tier, Colin Robinson. Early on in the show, Colin Robinson was placed lower, but the energy vampire is really coming into his own. Mark Proch's dry performance, coupled with all of the relatable energy-draining humor, provides a decent amount of enjoyability. S-tier, Laszlo and Nadja, the husband and wife vampire duo that truly make the show worth watching. Their antics are consistently funny. Matt Berry and Natasia Dimitria are perfect in the roles. Both are able to make the dumbest things funny with their acting. Their backs must hurt from carrying this show. That has been my What We Do in the Shadows house tier list. I'm in the middle of season two, and my fingers are crossed for Guillermo being killed before the season is over. That's a wrap on Blank is the Killer 80, Fake Monsters, Movie Murder, and Cannibal Moms. We're getting closer to October, which is going to be a weird one this year. Hopefully some fun new spooky stuff will come to Vaughn. If you enjoyed the podcast, consider leaving a rating or review on iTunes. The next episode will be out on my birthday, October 4th. Until then, if your mom starts eating flesh, don't panic. Just seek out a tiny scientist and everything will be okay. If Ma hasn't eaten someone you care about yet.